All views and opinions in this podcast are not meant to offend or hurt the sentiments of including but not limited to any person living or dead, religion or ethnic group, community or country. Indian food is so much more than dal, butter chicken or samosa. The average Indian isn't even remotely aware of the tremendous culinary diversity this country has to offer. If the average Indian isn't aware, the world surely hasn't a clue. And on this podcast, we're talking about all sorts of interesting regional Indian cuisines that just don't get the love they deserve. My name is Roxanne Bambot and this is Beyond Butter Chicken. As someone who was born and brought up in Mumbai, my idea of Maharashtrian food was always a handful of dishes that I loved eating. Pohe, misal, vada pav and kothambi vadi. It's only after I started writing about food and meeting interesting people like my guest today when I realized just how underrepresented the cuisine is even in its most popular metropolis. So today's episode on Beyond Butter Chicken is dedicated to one of my favorite regional cuisines with one of my favorite people who has actually broadened my own perspective on food. Writer, culinary consultant, accomplished author of two fantastic cookbooks and in my opinion one extremely talented cook, Sai Korane Khandekar. Sai, thank you so so much for being on this podcast. I'm really excited for this. Thank you so much for having me. So, of course, I wanted to do an episode on Maharashtrian food and um, the whole idea of this podcast was to do something that made people realize what different regional foods are and, you know, sort of just broaden our horizons and expand a little bit. So I thought, what best to start with Maharashtrian food? And honestly, who better than you? Because you've been like... Very (laughs) flattering. Yeah, of course, I'm I'm very flattering. But I've known you for so long and I've seen you do so many things. I mean, you know, with your books and with different projects and you've always been like the go-to person for Maharashtrian food. So I thought this was great. So how about we jump in and sort of just maybe talk about what the state uh, or what the cuisine sort of encapsulates? Because I know it's not just, you know, we always think of Maharashtrian food as, at least I would, as this uh, vara pao, misal pao, and it sort of gets slotted in that category. But I know there's more regions and there's more to it than just that. So maybe could you talk us through that? I think, uh, first of all, I'm going to say that, you know, this question is related to the name of your podcast, not just Butter Chicken. Incidentally, when I was writing my book on uh, Maharashtra Kadeem, the working title of the book was Not Just Vada Pao. Um, <laughs> because that's, you know, like you rightly said, people tend to think of uh, Maharashtra cuisine as synonymous with the street food of Maharashtra, which is, you know, Vada Pao and Misal Pao and all of these things. But like my friend Kurush Dalal likes to point out every single time, Vada Pao is actually more Portuguese than Maharashtrian because it the Portuguese gave us potatoes, they gave us chilies, they gave us the bread. So what exactly did we do with it? And it's a very, very recent invention. And obviously the range of Maharashtrian cuisine is far beyond, you know, what we perceive as Maharashtrian cuisine now. The first thing I think is to realize that the state of Maharashtra is really vast. It's a huge state. It's a huge region. And there are so many sub-regions within the state. So you cannot think possibly of Maharashtra cuisine as one cuisine. It is actually an amalgamation of so many sub-cuisines, right? So we're talking about different regions. Of course, we're talking about the Konkan. We're talking about the Desh, which is the plateau region, which is, you know, Pune and Satara. More uh, landlocked cities, more uh, not near the coast. Yes. Then we're talking about um, Khandesh, we're talking about Western Maharashtra, 
we're talking about uh, Vidarbha, Nagpur, which is more towards central India. Yeah. So you can imagine how uh, different the, the climate is in each of these regions, how different the topography is, you know, from the coast to the mountains to the plains. And therefore, as a result, how different the produce is. And yeah. all of this obviously influences the cuisine of the region. And we haven't even got into what kind of communities live there. What kind of communities are indigenous to each of these regions? What kind of communities made home in these regions later? You know, what is the diaspora like? You know, what yeah. cuisine did they bring? What did they adapt from what already existed? You know, it's very uh, interesting that you say this about communities that come in because a question that I wanted to ask you was also about uh, Pathare Prabhu cuisine because right. I didn't even know that there was this community of uh, what they call pipi no pathare yeah. prabhu and um, honestly it was through mutual friends like uh, mm. the most popular one i know is kunal vijaykar <laughs> you know kunal yeah. as well and it was quite insightful for me because i didn't even realize just like you said how many subsects there are because it's such a massive state obviously but it was very interesting if you could maybe talk us through a little bit about the pathare prabhus i find their food fantastic so the pathare prabhu community is obviously very interesting very rich uh, history but uh, you know since we were talking about how little we know about uh, maharashtrian cuisine i wanted to even you know narrow the scope down a little bit and talk about bombay mumbai itself has so many sub communities yes uh, you know, and Marathi-speaking sub-communities. I'm not even talking about communities that migrated to Bombay for work later, you know, or, or in the past, maybe 100 or 150 years. But there are communities indigenous to Bombay, uh, the most important being the Koi community, which is the yes. fisherman community. They're the first inhabitants of the land. The original inhabitants. Yes, yes. The Patare Prabhu community, the first settlers of Bombay. They have a very rich migratory history. You know, they, they come from the north, then they went to Rajasthan, then they came to Maharashtra via Gujarat. So as they traveled to all of these places, they picked up nuances from all of these cuisines and then came to Maharashtra and made it their home, finally. But the reason I mentioned the Kori community and, you know, so many other coastal communities that inhabit this region, especially in Bombay, is uh, to talk about how different, you know, the cuisine can be even in terms of uh, produce availability. So the Koris, yeah. the Patare Prabhus, the Agri community, all of these people have access to the same produce. You know, they're eating the same seafood. They have access to the same coconut. They have access to the same souring agents, you know, raw mango and kokum and things Kokum. like that. But their cuisine is so distinct. Each of those cuisines is very, very distinct. And what makes it distinct? is the masalas that they use and the kind of fish that they use. So the Patare Prabhu community has always been a richer community. They've had access to material. So they're known to uh, enjoy the more expensive fish. You know, they are the kind who will eat a pomfret or a ghor, you know, or a ravas more frequently. But uh, it's the Kori community and the Agri community that needs the lesser known fish, you know, that are not even sold in the mainstream fish market, the smaller fish, the cheaper fish. But their preparations are so unique and they're absolutely delightful. I love them, you know, the little bony fish and what you can do with them, not just eat them fresh, yeah. not just eat them in a curry or fried, but also dry them and then make a curry by rehydrating them, etc. Yeah, that's what the Kohli's do, actually. I read that obviously during the monsoon season, which is what, almost June till September end, they obviously don't go out to fish. So they use, I mean, what do you do for three or four months? They're yeah. uh, rehydrating fish that they've 
yeah. dried and yeah. they're using all their special masalas. I'm so glad you mentioned that because of course everyone knows that Kohli masala is fiery and superb. But I also read, I think I read it in your book if I'm not mistaken, which is like my Bible. But I read that the Pathare Prabhus are very secretive about their masala. So it's almost as if, you know, how you would get East Indian bottle masala, you could get it at a store. Even a Kohli lady would sort of make her masala for you. I think uh, Vatsala, your fish lady, yeah, uh, gives yeah. it to you. See, I've, I've, yeah. I've done my research. I've come to bed. <laughs> <laughs> but with the Pathare Prabhus, I think Kunal had also mentioned this. He said, you know, they're not, because it's so it's so unique to what uh, how they cook because of all the influences, like you said, that it's very distinct and different. And yeah. I find that very interesting. I don't know if I'm an advocate for someone hanging on to recipes and not wanting to share, because I think as yeah. a newer generation, I'm always looking for, you know, granny recipes right. and family heirlooms. And I'm sure you are as well. But very interesting to see two distinct or three distinct masalas when you would think it's all the yeah. same. Yeah. Uh, so the I wouldn't go so far as to say that they're secretive about their masalas because I think in some measure all communities are secretive and you know the best chefs are known to you know keep some secrets to them yeah they hold they sharing. hold a little yeah. bit back yeah yeah and like you I, I don't subscribe to that because I think the sign of a good teacher is to actually give away as much yes. as you possibly yes. can and see yes. interpretations of that but um, yeah coming back to the Patare Prabhus I, I wouldn't say they're secretive I think what happens is they, there is this and this applies to all communities in Maharashtra, I think there is a little apprehension about how the cuisine will be perceived by mm. pe- by those outside of the community. Yeah. What if it is not liked? You know, yeah. and therefore it is not uh, something that has been made commercially easily available. So the Pathare Prabhu masalas are made by a select few Pathare Prabhu women who will sell it yes. just to the community in you know these fairs that happen uh, maybe once or twice a year, that kind of thing. So I think it's it's not so much about secrecy as much as it is to do with I wouldn't say not having pride but to some extent you know just uh, it's probably fear of yeah it's a little bit of fear of acceptance and I suppose we all have that it is a bit of apprehension and fear of not being accepted so to speak and I suppose that also stems from why I'm doing this podcast to take because people have this set notion of Indian food and it's always just the butter chicken or you know mostly Mughlai or North Indian food or even a handful of Punjabi dishes so then the acceptance to try different things is you're a little bit hesitant because that's not the flavor you thought of so I I suppose I understand from their perspective it's like if you're going to come in thinking you want a sweetish tangyish thing and I'm giving you a firebomb you know maybe you're going to be a little bit judgmental so I suppose uh, we can you know forgive them that I really think there is, you know, something that we can all learn from Patari Prabhu cuisine because it's a community that has worked um, in the past so closely with colonial India, right? They all had administrative positions in the British era. And as a result, a lot of their cuisine is influenced by the people they worked for, right? So baking is a big thing in Pathare Prabhu cuisine. So the karanjis that we make in Maharashtra, which are deep fried in ghee, the Pathare Prabhu community bakes them. They also make shepherd's pie, but they stuff it with uh, prawns. Yes, I was going to uh, say that. uh, I believe they peepify is what I read somewhere. They Pathare Prabhu-fy everything by adding minced (laughs) prawn or minced mutton to it. I think they even do it with uh, misal or usal and even upma and things like that, which I thought was fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, yes. Yeah. So using dried prawns or even fresh baby prawns in poha is a very coastal Maharashtra thing, not just limited to the Patare Prabhu community, but uh, to all uh, fish 
cheating communities in in Maharashtra. The CKP community, which is the Chandrasenia Kayasthapa group, they are known for uh, you know their very enthusiastic usage of seafood in you know vegetarian, uh, yeah. traditionally vegetarian preparations. So not just poha, but they would probably also make a bharli wangi, which has dried, rehydrated prawns in it, or they would make any kind of gourd. Uh, bhaji or you know papdi with keema or papdi with uh, prawns that kind of thing so very similar to the delicious. parsi community huh where, where we just yes. uh, like to add our meat in anything yes. and everything though i will say uh, the pathare prabhus do it far more tastefully and uh, with a little ah. bit of restraint <laughs> in comparison to the parsi community but that's a different story so we've talked about how there is so much diversity in different regions and you know each region is obviously uh, preparing their cuisine based on the crop and uh, the climate uh, to that. But um, would you say that there is any specific ingredient or flavor palette that sort of encompasses Maharashtrian food? Like, you know, when we talk about, say, Gujarati food, the notion is always like it's sweet. It's all, mm. Everything has sugar. I mean, it, it doesn't, mm. but there is a mm. slight tone of jaggery and uh, sugar and sweetness. And to me, the perception of Maharashtrian food is spicy do you think that is a very generic statement or is there something which is similar or common for most in terms of ingredients or even flavor to sort of wrap it up and be like you know yeah this was a Maharashtrian meal right so unfortunately I wouldn't use any one adjective to describe Maharashtrian cuisine because going back to you know the regions and the communities each of their cuisines has a distinctive flavor profile of its own so if you eat from say the Brahmin community along the coast, then your the food is going to be a little umbert gourd. So uh, you know a balance of uh, sour and uh, sweet. So there's always okay. a combination. So if you're making a dal, for instance, it will have either kokum or tamarind or some other you know some souring agent. Souring uh, agent. In, in combination with a sweetener. So there will be jaggery or there will be sugar or something. And this applies to dal. This applies to sabzi. That kind of thing. But if you go to Nagpur, for instance, then there is you know, the sweetener in, in a vegetarian preparation is just not encouraged. In that part of Maharashtra, I think the flavor profile is more nutty because they tend to use seed oils, they tend to use round nuts and seeds in the preparations themselves, you know, as uh, thickeners. If you come to Kolhapur again, Kolhapur is a very, very, I think, very sophisticated palate. Unfortunately, you know, commercial eateries have sort of uh, given it a bad it. rep. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Blacklist yeah. is as fiery tamra rasa, yeah. you know, and it's, you can't eat it and got smoke coming out of your ears and all of that. I mean, tamra rasa is pretty delicious, let me tell you. I, don't, I, I mean, and I haven't not... had it with smoke out of my ears, but it's been fiery, but it's pretty yeah. damn good. <laughs> Yeah, but the thing, uh, Roxanne, is that it's not everything that comes out of Kolhapur is fiery, you know. So there are lots of colors of curries because Tambra Mm -hmm. is a color, right? Tambra means red. Pandra rasa is white. Then there is a Hirwa rasa, which is green curry. There is a Piwara rasa, which is a yellow curry. All of these have different masalas going into them and therefore have different flavor profiles. If you look at the Pandra Rasa, which is my favorite, I think it is a gem because it is, you know, a lesson in how sophisticated, how sophisticated a manner you can use spices in. This is a recipe that uses the seeds of dried red chilies. Because you don't want to use the dried red chilies to, you know, which is going to ruin the color, right? You don't okay. want to make the curry green in color by using green chilies. You don't want to make it red in color or peach in color by adding red chilies or whatever. So you use the seeds, which, which is what contains the heat anyway, yeah. right? And you use it in combination with cashew nuts and poppy seeds and, you know, things like that. And I think it's, it's just a lesson in 
sophistication, how you, you know, a restrained use of spices can also yield such a flavorful and simple broth. So yeah, I think Kolhapuri cuisine needs to be taken beyond its Tamra Rasa reputation and seen as something that evolved out of uh, whatever was available and what the royal family sort of, you know, uh, gave to that yeah. region. Interesting. So, you know, speaking of Tamra Rasa and things like that, you, I see a lot of seafood with, you know, coastal dishes. I see a lot of chicken <laughs> with the popular choices. But is there any meat? When I say meat, I mean mutton, maybe even beef, any red meat or any pork in any popular style of cuisine. I do know that uh, the Konkani Muslim community eats a fair bit of mutton. I'm not sure where that comes from, but I don't see it on other menus that much. Am I wrong or is I there something I think that to again is the result of, you know, uh, commercial eateries, you know, playing it safe and serving chicken and fish. But if you look at it historically, Maharashtra is a state that uh, started eating chicken uh, quite late. In fact, most of India started eating chicken at the rate at which we do now quite late it is oh, yes. Um, yes it's a green revolution it's a post green revolution phenomenon eating chicken by default maharashtra has been a consumer of goat and uh, in some areas lamb so if you look at the very traditional dishes whether it is in kolhapur or it is in nagpur or khandesh or you know wherever you will realize that the preferred meat of choice is usually goat or lamb the chicken is a very, very recent phenomenon and to date, the grandparent generation is going to, you know, just frown upon it if, if it's on the menu. You know, they'd probably <laughs> rather just eat vegetarian food, but not, definitely not chicken. Add me to Fair that. Fair enough. Yes. Do you see a lot of beef also in menus or it's just lamb or mutton? The Muslim community does eat beef in Maharashtra. The Hindus don't. You know, in the interiors of Maharashtra, wild boar was, you know, something that was yeah. enjoyed, but is obviously not now for various reasons. But yes, I mean, and of course the East Indian community, which is also Maharashtra based, eats a fair bit of pork. Pork as well. You know, is it different um, when it comes to festive food and your regular daily food? So what would you say is cooked for a special puja or a wedding versus what you would eat at home like gharka khana and i ask this because for me being a parsi we tend to blur the lines quite a bit you know so we have our elaborate wedding food but often you will find that that's something that we make at home also so i don't know how celebratory that is so is it the same for y'all with maharashtrian food or do you keep like festive uh, feasts separate completely Uh, there are a few dishes that are reserved for you know weddings and threat ceremonies and that kind of thing and across communities I mean uh, whether it is a Konkani Muslim community or any other Muslim community from Maharashtra or the East Indian community or the Bene Israeli community the, the food that you eat every day is often reflects in uh, your celebratory feasts as well but I think what sets the two apart is the number of dishes that is served in a celebratory feast you know so whether you're serving a Nevedya platter or you're serving a a wedding feast, the number of dishes is absolutely astounding. And uh, some of those dishes you would probably make on an everyday basis. You know, like uh, in my community, most of the celebratory meals start with varan bhat, which is basically plain rice with plain dal. You know, and that's something that my children eat every day. So, I mean, there's nothing celebratory about it. But it's it's a combination of, um, you know, the basics along with a few specials. But what is key, I think, to feasting in general is the season. 
what would you eat at a wedding in peak summer and what would you eat at a wedding in the winter is going yeah. to be quite different because the vegetables that are available are going to be different uh, you might serve shrikhand in the summer because shrikhand has cooling properties Correct. and all of that you would um, probably serve a warm kheer in the winter that kind of thing yeah. you know it's very interesting you brought up varan bhat which is just dal chawal so even for us not at a wedding but you know if there's a say a birthday for example at home yeah. my mother would always make peen dal no no yeah dhandar oh, and yeah. there's no you know tadka or any yeah. embellishments to it and i and i would always wonder i said i eat this every day it's my birthday i want you know something fancy and she said no it's almost like you're paying homage to say hey Absolutely. i know this is a celebration but yes. this is my simple food that has sustained me and and i, I just thought it was such a nice concept of you yes. know being a little bit gracious which we and especially if you're saying you know on a on a wedding feast the number of dishes like you're trying to be opulent and elaborate yes. this little humble dal and rice sort of pulls you back and says hey you you know you're just it saying all started thanks. with this it yeah. all started with this and yeah. sustains with that you know Absolutely. nothing else yeah. it's always everyone's favorite comfort food so i like that a lot actually yeah yeah fantastic okay now i know we talked about you know vada pav being the staple and uh, you know mm. a handful of uh, dishes with all the tokenism you know most restaurants even in mumbai like the popular ones like say aswad or ladu samrat like you know if you do a google search and you say where do i get the best maharashtrian food it will be the same usual suspects and all the menus are the same and it was yeah. shocking to me because i remember looking i think it was the aswad menu which is like in the heart of uh, dadar and uh, you know with the big maharashtrian community all around and it had just i mean of course it had varan bhat which is lovely plain dal and rice <laughs> but it just had you know khichdi and and snacky food so to speak and then it had this obnoxious chinese menu <laughs> and some butter chicken again everywhere <laughs> you go and as i can like, understand this is a crowd pleaser but it just takes away from you know when you want a maharashtrian meal so it's either that yeah. or then it is a thali restaurant to, which is more malwani which is just seafood and invariably yeah. spicy preparation whether it is or isn't that's the restaurant interpretation so my question really is if i want a really nice well rounded maharashtrian meal and i want to go to a restaurant in mumbai which is the capital of maharashtra where should i go unfortunately i have no answer to that question <laughs> because i've been searching forever and i haven't found a place like you said i mean if even if one were to go to uh, these popular snack joints you know yeah. even there the snacks that they serve are not accurate they don't do justice to i love how you snacks. said accurate and not authentic i love yeah, because that because that's a whole other oh, correct correct <laughs> i just feel like it's such an abused twisted overused Absolutely. word but i like the usage of accurate and that it, yes. it also hits well <laughs> yeah because there are certain things that need to be made in a technically accurate manner for them to be called most of these uh, joints serve thali peet because you know everybody seems to enjoy thali peet across the yeah. united states and, and for those listening that don't know what thali peet is could you maybe explain that a little yeah so thali peet is actually a multi grain flat bread that is made out of a flour that has been toasted you know so the grains have been toasted very slowly before they are milled and it's a coarse kind of multigrain flour and it has spices added to it as well and this is you know it gets mixed with onions and coriander and stuff like that and it is patted on a, a skillet or you know on a banana leaf and then it's like a maharashtrian pancake 
savory yes. Maharashtrian pancake yes. for but lack of a better be very, description. Yes, but it's not a soft one at all. It's supposed to be crisp and it's supposed to be short. Unfortunately, what happens in these eateries is they, for whatever reason, they can come up with, you know, whether it is lack of time or whatever, they tend to deep fry the damn thali peat. And to me, it's yeah. absolutely heartbreaking because it's sacrilege is killing the personality of the thali peat. It is supposed to be necessarily slow cooked on a tawa in little oil. It is supposed to be a healthy nourishing sort of uh, you know breakfast dish or a snack sometimes also eaten as a quick dinner but deep frying it absolutely ruins its texture it ruins that nuttiness that has been painstakingly achieved by pre-toasting the grains before they yeah. are milled and when you deep fry the damn thing it just you know loses all of that subtle flavor. I mean the texture completely changes along the with the flavor. The texture changes yeah so I, I think even these eateries I, I understand when you have a restaurant places like Bombay, the rentals, you know, you have to justify the rentals and it's it's very difficult to run a restaurant in Bombay. But some of these dishes, I think you must make an effort to do them right because otherwise you are misrepresenting the cuisine and people will start expecting thalipit to be deep fried. But if you go to a friend's home, you will find that the thalipit has a completely different appearance and a completely different, you know, flavor. And that is what you need to show people. If it's not feasible take it off the menu (laughs) so you know my problem really with most restaurants in the city not just Maharashtrian ones is this urge and need to deep fry everything like if you just for fun for sport go on to any restaurant menu and look at the appetizer section nine out of 10 things will be deep fried. And I think the smaller joints have done the same thing. It's probably to just, you know, it's quick, it's easier and things like that. But to me, it's just so sad because I'm looking for so much more. I'm trying to explore. I want more access to Maharashtrian food. I like certain flavors. Like I love Mistal. I just, it's Mm. a family favorite. We love it. But I want to go beyond that. You know, I want to, I mean, the state is massive there. And, And as we spoke, there's so many regions and things like that. It's just sad that that it's not easily accessible in its capital Yeah, city. and it's a combination of several things. One, like I said, is of course the rentals, prohibitive. Restaurants that do exist in, in the Marathi eatery space are also not, you know, making an effort to do things right. Like I said about the Thali Peet or for Kothimbirwadi, for instance, you know, the quick thing. I love, I love, I love, I love. On. Yeah, but you know, you've been eating the wrong version. You need to come home. I'm, um, I'm going to take you up on that. Uh, don't throw <laughs> these uh, subtle, uh, you know, invites in between. No, I will come. <laughs> Most welcome. So the Kothimbir Wadi that you've been eating in commercial eateries also is, in my opinion, misrepresented because traditionally Kothimbir Wadi is not made out of basin. Making it out of basin is just a quick and easy way out. You're supposed to actually soak the chanadal, then grind it first, then mix it with the you know the coriander, then steam it and then shallow fry it. But uh, it's, it's quite a process. That, yes, it is. But if Managed intelligently, it can be done even commercially in a more technically accurate manner. It can be shallow fried even in a quick service restaurant. It does not have to be deep fried. You know, you're you're going to account for maybe one minute extra of cooking before it actually reaches yeah. the customer's table. But uh, it, my point is, it can be done and it should be done. Rather, they than just don't want to do it. That's the problem. Yeah, I think they're just you know we've been doing it like this for the yeah. past seventy five years. What's the need to change? Yeah. But there is a need to change because we need to break people's notions of what uh, Maharashtrian cuisine is because there's just so much more. 
So if I had to bring a tourist in, and I used to do this, you know, I used to do, I, right. I think you know this, I used to do food yeah. walks and, you know, introduce people to the cuisine in the city. And obviously this is Mumbai, Maharashtra. You want to eat Maharashtrian food. Where should, where could I take them? Or, or I'd have to split it across several meals and say, this is one dish, this is another dish and sort of pick and choose. I think that's pretty uh, much what I'd have to do. I think you'd have to. But unfortunately, you know, the answer to that again is that you, you will probably not find a commercial establishment that will do justice to any of these communities or do justice to any of these dishes. Because I mean, hey, we're looking at, even if you were to take people to a five-star restaurant in the city, which is named after, and I don't want to take any names here, but which is named after... Um, Go for it. Go for it. We love it. <laughs> Which is named after the Peshwas, right? And uh, yeah. what Maharashtrian food do you get in that restaurant? Just a token kande pohe yeah. in the coffee shop does not uh, represent the cuisine of the land at all. And absolutely. to me, that is absolutely uh, disheartening. So if you were to ask me where you should take a guest to eat Maharashtrian food, I would say just find friends who are willing to host you. I'll find so you. Find, I'll just oh, call yeah, you. <laughs> Somehow knew that was the answer to my question, but I asked it any which ways. <laughs> but, you know, this is, I'm glad you brought this up. Um, so I feel like, you know, when you say there's not enough restaurant, there's not enough representation, I feel like you have decided to take on that mantle and say, I'm going to change the game with your book. And I have it right here with me because I love it. It's called Pangat. And it's really, too, I think it's almost like a Bible for Maharashtrian food because I was telling my producer, you know, I would never, ever buy a cookbook that doesn't have any pictures in it. And this, I have like notes in it that, you know, because it's broken down with a whole bunch of, from chutney to pickle, to seafood, to vegetables and rice. And I didn't even know there were that many recipes, you know? So I'm actually really, uh, I love that you have written this book, but my question is how long did it take you? And are all the recipes in here, like your family recipes, or did you have to sort of scour and say, you know, what, what is this? I mean, what is the kind of research that went into something like this? So I was writing, uh, researching and then writing Pangat for three years. Three um, years? Yes, it's the wow. joke with my with my publishers. When I teach a book, they know for a fact that it's going to take three years because my first book also took three years. So yeah, it took a fair bit of research. It took a lot of reading. It, it took a bit of traveling. It took a bit of, uh, you know, recipe testing as usual. To answer your question about whether all of those recipes are family recipes, not at all, actually. There are just a few recipes that come from the family. But the, so I grew up, I was raised vegetarian. So I started eating non-vegetarian food when, you know, I went to college, etc. And like uh, most people, you know, you get, uh, uh, what's the word? You sort of dip your toes into the pool of non-veg and then that's it. That's a game changer. (laughs) Once you've tasted blood, you can't go back. (laughs) Quite literally. So yeah, and then when I got married and had my own kitchen, I started cooking more. And Vatsala, my Fisher woman, was one of my trainers. You know, she sort of taught me how to... I quite like Vatsala. I must say I was reading about her. She features in your book where uh, you talk about how she taught you about uh, seafood. Like she's been your teacher and telling you what fish to eat uh, during your pregnancy and things like that. I love that. Absolutely. She taught me how to break down a crab and how to use the feet. You you grind the feet and you uh, sort of strain the water and use that to cook the crab curry in. And that is sort of the essence of crab. And that's what makes your curry so 
crabby, so to speak. But, and you know, this uh, is the so kind delicious. of information you will never get on a YouTube tutorial, which is Absolutely. my go-to. You know, I'm always like looking up things and even in cookbooks, right. it's, you, you need a vatsala. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) And then, of course, there are, um, you know, there are recipes inspired by other communities that I have had uh, the privilege of interacting with. Uh, The Konkuni Muslim uh, recipes are... um, something I remember from my friend's, you know, family home uh, in the Konkan. And I remember, I, I mentioned this in the book, but I remember going to her wedding in the Konkan. Yes, And I, I remember her father going and choosing just the right goat for the next day's curry. And the thing again about uh, the Konkani Muslim community, especially the smaller villages in, um, in the Konkan, is that they are still unaffected by the kebab and biryani culture, which has come much later. Celebratory feast, even in these villages today, is, you know, just a beautifully simmering pot of goat curry yeah. with a seasonal good quality rice. It's never basmati. So, you know, <sighs> these little things that really stand out for me and which I tried to capture. So, like I was saying, the recipes are not always family recipes. Some of them are uh, influenced by food that I've eaten at friends' homes and, you know, neighbors' homes and things like that. The Konkani Muslim recipes that are in the book are um, remind me of what I've eaten in my friend's family home. And I mentioned her wedding. In, yes, I read in, that. In the Konkan. And to me, that was an education because here was a Konkani Muslim wedding that, you know, you probably expected to eat a biryani and kebab, but this was a village that was untouched by all of that and we're still making a, a rich goat curry with a seasonal local rice and not basmati. I remember her father going the previous night and you know choosing the right kind of goat for his precious daughter's wedding feast and all of that. I love how so, the food was more it you know it almost seems like the picking the right goat was more important than say her wedding outfit or picking jewelry and things like that. So I forget all this is all about yes. the goat. <laughs> yes what are we eating <laughs> yeah. and how are we eating it? Yes, and the whole village obviously gets invited because these are small villages and more often than not everybody is related to everybody. So the whole village is invited to the wedding feast. And so even if you slaughter one animal, all of it gets consumed in one feast. Yeah, there's no Um, wastage. It's it's honoring, yeah, yeah. It's just an intelligent use of uh, resources. So I like that, huh? Three years of research. Man, I don't don't know if I have (laughs) that kind of uh, dedication, um, but I'm so glad that you do. (laughs) because this is quite something it's my mom's most favorite so we bought the book and then a friend borrowed it and she's and mom stalks you on instagram every time it's it's, it's all like what's sai cooking so mom has two favorites like you and another gentleman and it's so funny yesterday my sister asked her because I told them I was like I'm gonna record a podcast with sai and she said oh lovely so my sister said oh do so who do you think is more versatile you sai or this other gentleman and my mom took a second and she's like of course sai what are you saying? Have you seen our stuff? I like that. And it's a great segue to my next question because versatile is really a word I would choose to describe how you cook. And I've seen you do so many pop-ups with restaurants where you plan menus. I remember uh, years ago, I think it was in Vashi. I think at one of the hotels that you took over that kitchen and did this wonderful yeah. elaborate menu. And then recently you planned the menu at a bar in Pune, if I'm not mistaken. And um, you were there and it got rave reviews. I, I didn't even have to follow you. I saw other people talking about it. <laughs> and what I love about this, and which is why I keep saying versatile, because you're, you were curating a menu 
of basically Maharashtrian food, but giving it this wonderful sort of modern twist or sort of like the side take on it and making it more accessible or should I say making it more cool or hip or trendy, whatever word you want to choose, but just sort of breaking the barrier of it being this formal, what you eat on a thali or, you know, what you eat at home. And I thought that's fantastic. I mean, you've been doing it for years. This uh, Puna thing is more recent, but I'd love to hear more about the process behind that. Like, why do, why do you feel it's important to do this? Or are you just bored of the regular stuff and want to have some fun? I think it's a combination of both. I get, um, I get bored of things fairly easily, I think. That's a sign uh, of a true genius. I'm just going to say. <laughs> so yeah, I do enjoy putting together uh, menus that are very, very traditional. I have done thali festivals and things like that at uh, hotels. But I also do enjoy putting a spin on the traditional favorites and presenting them in a different way. Because like you said, I think it helps to make the cuisine more accessible. It makes it a little fun for uh, the younger generation. And I don't think there's any harm in making food a little aspirational as well, you know, by changing the vocabulary of it a little bit. I do want to clarify, though, that when I put these spins on the food, I'm still not doing any kind of molecular anything. because Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. There's no foam, there is no gel, there is no machinery of any sort. This is just being a creative way. Like, can you give me an example of some of the dishes that you did maybe at this recent pop-up? So we did... uh, something that we call the Malwani Shakshuka. Um, okay. Was, yeah, and which was hugely popular, surprisingly. I was, um, you know, to tell you very frankly, I put it on the menu because I needed an egg dish, you know, for the for the people who don't eat meat and are bored of eating yeah, vegetables. Yeah. And so I thought, let me put this. And um, it's actually a very traditional Malwani way of eating eggs. In Malwan, they would call it Gujana which is basically just a base of, you know, fried onions, maybe tomatoes, maybe coconut and the malwani masala. And then you make a sort of thickish gravy with it and you break a couple of eggs. It's, it's like a, you know, kanda tomato paridu kind of Correct. situation. I was just going to say uh, that. But with the malwani masala in it. We did that. So basically, I, I didn't make any changes in the traditional dish. I just changed the name from budana to yeah. shakshuka. And the moment I did that, obviously, there was, you know, some element of, uh, okay, let's try this. I wonder what this is. It's and also a connect, right? Because you know what a shakshuka is, but you don't know what, I, I sorry, I can't even yes, pronounce the, the Malwani yes, name. Exactly. And this is not just restricted to, you know, non-Maharashtrians, but Maharashtrians also don't know about these dishes. So if you're in the Konkan, you don't know what's happening in Nagpur and you don't know even the traditional uh, foods. In fact, you know, communities in the Vidarbha eat their, uh, you know, they orient their banana leaf also differently. In this part of Maharashtra, in, in the Konkan and in, on the plateau, we orient our banana leaf vertically, you know. Yeah. But in Nagpur, etc., they uh, orient it horizontally, horizontally. like the South Indians. Correct. So it's, you know, I didn't even notice that. that. You know, you, yeah. you just brought it up and now I'm thinking, I'm like, yeah, that's true. Like, they, it, it's just a different way that they even place that. Yes, yes. So the cuisine is that different, you know. The, the broad traditions and the broad dishes may be the same, yeah. but the taste and the, you know, the way the cuisine is implemented, is, mm-hmm. is quite distinct. So yeah, you've just I mean, given it a little bit of a tweak and... Um, yeah, just, I'm just you know, playing more with vocabulary than with anything else. I like I that. I studied English more. <laughs> so a bit of that had to come in some way. <laughs> I like that. So there are many popular dishes like tabra rasa and kolapuri chicken and vada pao and 
Sabudana and everything that we sort of talked about, you know, the popular ones. And this is my favorite question. I like to ask it to everyone. There's no right or wrong answer, but this is your take. What would you think is the one dish that really represents the cuisine best? I mean, or if there is anything, I know we've talked about how it's so diverse and everything, but you know, just one dish that so you sort of rounds up and says, this is Maharashtrian food. I would say pohe. Uh, ah, good answer. <laughs> because it's an ingredient that is used across the state, irrespective of from you know where it is grown. Paddy is primarily, obviously, you know, a coastal crop, and in some regions of uh, the plateau. But it is also used extensively in uh, the Vidarbha and Marathwada regions, and each region uses pohe differently. I was just going to ask that. I'm sure they all have their own versions of pohe. Absolutely. So if you go to Nagpur, I think you'll get, uh, you know, on the street side, you will get what is known as tari pohe. So tari? Yes, tari is basically okay. the gravy, sort of mm-hmm. like the gravy that you get with your missiles. So you or like a tamada rasa kind of situation. Yeah. yeah. So you get a plate of pohe and they pour the tari on top. So it's this yellow, very innocent looking so it's uh, not the dry with... pohe that you're used to. No, it's, it's not. Wet. Also, the pohe that you get in uh, eateries here are typically kande pohe, batate pohe, that yeah. kind of yeah. uh, thing. But if you look at traditional recipes, you will see that there are so many, so many different kinds of pohe. We also do vangi pohe, which is basically brinjals cooked in pohe. I'm not sure how I feel about that, though. I'm not a big (laughs) Vrindal fan, so I I feel like it's uh, taking away from my favorite, but fair enough, I'll I'll give you that. So Okay, uh, let me tell you, Prakash in uh, Dadar does Mm -hmm. a Sunday special of Vangi Pohe and only lasts till about 10 o'clock in the morning. And they're delicious because it's got a masala in it and all, you know, it's not the bland Sunday Pohe, it's not the yellow Pohe. It's a slightly orangish masala wala pohe and it's quite delicious. We also do sode ghalun pohe, which is basically rehydrated uh, prawns. We do uh, pohe that are just white in color with just, uh, you know, coconut added to it and a very basic tadka. So we do pohe with... I don't think I've ever seen a white pohe. Yeah. Uh, we do pohe with jaggery and coconut, which is also offered as uh, nevidya, you know, by the Saraswat community to mm-hmm. Ganpati. In fact, one of the Saraswat specialties is that they offer five different kinds of pohe dishes to Ganpati. And so there you have it. I mean, there, there's so that is actually the perfect answer. That, uh, yes. I thought you were going to say, you know, something else and oh, we don't have anything. But I think pohe seems to be the universal. Very, uh, very versatile ingredient. Yes. Yeah, I would say that uh, the ingredient is representative of the state. I think even South Indians do a white pohe with uh, coconut. But I haven't actually tried that. I feel like now I have to put a list of things. So white pohe is one. (laughs) And then this uh, brinjal pohe uh, Sunday special is another one. Absolutely. Oh, prawn pohe would be my dream. I mean, I make a pretty mean pohe, I must say. Mm. I don't know how you would rank it. I'll feed it to you one day. (laughs) Um, But I love it. I think it's amazing. And now this addition of prawn has me hungry. (laughs) But yeah. Okay, Sai, what would be your favorite or rather your all-time favorite uh, Maharashtrian dishes or dish? It's a really unfair question because there's so many. This but, is like, you know, uh, when people ask you, who's your favorite child? <laughs> and you're just like, what? I know, that's, that's just the wrong question to ask a parent, right? But uh, since Vatsala just stopped by and she uh, deposited, you know, some sliced fish, I'm going to say fish fry of whatever kind, from whatever kind of community. I just love fry fish. 
please tell Vatsala that she has become very, very important and an integral <laughs> part of this podcast because she has been featured and I think she's an quite a cool lady. character. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> and I think, you know, people like this is what actually sort of makes your excitement for food more. You know, when they're, they're a character and they've got their way of speaking and then they'll scold you and they'll wag yeah. their little finger in your face and tell you, asanai, asanai, and do it like yeah, this yeah, yeah. and all. And Absolutely. it just kind You've of piques your interest on. even more. <laughs> You're like, okay, I'll do it just for the fun of Your it. <laughs> so I like that, huh? Fried fish. Yeah. So Sai, what would you say are maybe five ingredients or top ingredients that you should use in when you're cooking Maharashtrian food or that would possibly be incomplete without those like your five top Maharashtrian ingredients that everyone would have in their pantry and would use so more than uh, the ingredients I'm going to talk about the categories of these ingredients which if you mix and match at the end of it you will still end up with something that can be called a Maharashtrian dish so the first one is masalas community specific masalas so whether it is a Malwani or it is a PKP masala or the Goda masala from the Brahmin community or uh, the Kandalasun masala from Kolapur, you know, uh, Kara masala from Khandesh and so on. And uh, you can so the use these one, in anything, right? Like you can mix and match. It's not that a masala has to be used only for XYZ recipe. Like you can have fun with it. Absolutely. You can use it for meat. You can use it for dals. You can use it for uh, vegetables that, and, and so on. The second one would be souring agents, which are very, very important uh, to the cuisine. These include things like kokum, tamarind, raw mango in fresh form or dried form, brimby, you know, sometimes even amlas. So really whatever is in season. So it doesn't have to be just one. Like I would imagine kokum would have been the standard use, you know, because you see a lot of coastal food, I mean, across the whole belt going all the way down south, uh, use a lot of kokum. But you're saying any souring agent. Absolutely, absolutely. So in a fish curry, you change the, the flavor of the curry depending on Uh, the souring agents that you use. You know, you Mm -hmm. use fresh mango, fresh raw mango when in season. Uh, When it's not, you use uh, kokum. If you've run out of kokum, you use tamarind, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. But every time you make an iteration, changes, you know, the flavor profile of the dish. And and that is what I think makes the cuisine very, very versatile. The other thing is sweetener. So yes, of course, there is sugar, then there is jaggery. But there's also what is known as kakwe. Kakwe is basically sugarcane molasses, which are used as a sweetener, but also uh, as a condiment. So it's something that we would literally use like, uh, you know, honey or maple syrup over mm-hmm. pancakes or, you know, that kind of thing. Nice. Uh, very often, kakri is served alongside a fresh bakri, you know, to young children because it is so nutrient-rich. So there's masalas, the souring agents, the sweetening agents. Then I would say thickeners. Thickeners are extremely important uh, to Maharashtra cuisine because we eat a lot of curries mm-hmm. and uh, different regions thicken their uh, curries differently. So the konkan obviously uses coconut, okay. whether it is coconut that has been, um, you know, roasted in the masala and then ground and then used as a thickener, or you have dried coconut or you have coconut milk. In the plateau region, we use a lot of peanuts. As you go to Nagpur, Marathwada, Vidarbha, you know, all of those regions will also use sesame seeds, flax seeds even. Thickeners are very, very important uh, seeds, basically, and nuts are important to the state. And then I would say dairy. We're a a state that uses um, dairy in various, various formats, you know. So we are very fond of uh, milk. We are fond of dahi. Then there's buttermilk, there's butter, there is... um, what have you literally uh, down to colostrum which is a very very popular 
ingredients karvas. for the karvas. Yes. I like so, that. Yeah. I asked you for five ingredients and very tactfully, you have given me a subtle breakdown of the cuisine <gasps> and we've sort of encompassed this whole conversation by, you know, hitting <laughs> about how different regions have different ingredients and everything. And you've just perfectly summed it up. I like this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I'm going to wrap this up. But my last question really is that with two cookbooks under your belt, all these numerous culinary projects that you do, menus and pop-ups and everything. And now I've thrown in, uh, you know, a potential YouTube revival. What does the future look like for Sai? I think just more um, learning, more reading, a little bit of writing, more cooking. <laughs> nice. So this was wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today, Sai. It was a delight. All I want to do now is eat. And I can't decide if I want misal or if I want curry or if I want all this wonderful poha that we've talked about <laughs> studied with prawns. But it's just wonderful. And I feel like I've gotten to know so much more about the cuisine. It's always learning, which is fantastic. And if you'd like to learn more about this, please do pick up a copy of her book. It's called Pangat. Of course, you can stalk Sai. And I say stalk and not follow because there's just so much information. You can follow her on social media. She's very active on her Instagram and always sharing recipes as well. I hope you had fun. Thanks so much for doing this, Sai. My pleasure entirely Roxanne thank you so much for having me if you enjoyed this podcast you can tune in every week for a brand new episode where I talk to another expert and delve into a different aspect of Indian cuisine you can listen to more episodes of the Beyond Butter Chicken podcast on Spotify Apple Music or any of your favorite podcast platforms and make sure to follow us at Mammoth Media Publishing and The Tiny Taster for more updates until next time 